Fresh brains. Hi. Thanks for tuning in again. I was really excited putting this week's episode together. It's a brief overview of the history of neurosurgery. How we got to where we are today, what held us back for so long, and the huge contribution that Harvey Cushing made. I think understanding history is really important for putting where we are today into context. Anyone involved in neurosurgery or surgery in general, really, is really going to love this episode. Hope you enjoy. So today, I, I thought we'd do something a little different. Instead of, instead of going over the evidence behind something, I thought it'd be kind of interesting to go into the history of neurosurgery. So something we don't have to wildly speculate about. <laughs> well, we can still we can still wildly, wildly speculate. There'll be okay. plenty of wild speculation in this episode. When I first was learning about neurosurgery, the story that I hear is it was all founded by like Harvey Cushing in, you know, early 1900s. And that's the history of modern neurosurgery. But it kind of begs the question in my head, what happened before the last 100 years? Why wasn't it until just recently that we actually have this modern field of neurosurgery? What was holding us back that whole time? And what were we doing before that? Right. So let me take you back. (laughs) Going way back, what's the earliest evidence we have of something anywhere related to brain surgery, right? So I remember watching History Channel, you know, uh-huh. and you hear about these discoveries of skulls in ancient times with holes in the head. And when you look at the evidence of what we can find out there, it looks like there's probably different reasons why people were cutting holes in each other's heads way back when. It's kind of hard because, you know, we're talking on the edge of five, 6,000 years ago. And so we don't have much records around, the, around these times, um, but we do have the skulls. And we can kind of infer things from those and from what we can piece together from the time. It's interesting when you look at the actual skulls, you can see the kind of tools they were using, for example, to cut the holes. Like some of them were just cut with kind of straight lines that connected into into like a circle versus drilling a bunch of holes and then trying to pop out a piece of bone versus like kind of sanding down a piece of the bone. (sighs) Man. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, when you when you don't have when you don't have modern tools, you know, you you got to do what you got to do. Maybe that was the first Midas. Yeah, <laughs> just rub really fast. <laughs> That's kind of what we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. And then when you look at the context in which these were done, it seems like some of them were maybe done in a ritualistic, religious sort of context. But actually, if you, if you look at a lot of these skulls, a lot of them have what looks like previous trauma. So what it actually looks like a lot of them might be is head trauma, skull fractures, and they were trying to treat the skull fractures somehow by either removing fragments or trying to open up the bone in that area, maybe presumably where they were having some brain swelling or something like that. Hmm. Yeah. So decompressive craniectomy way before CT. Basically, yeah. (laughs) Cavemen doing decompressive cranies. It's not that hard. Some of the other indications that they thought these might be done for... There's early descriptions of people acting in weird ways that they think might might have been epilepsy or, you know, headache disorders where they think that making these holes trephination might have relieved the headache or something like that. Hmm. A lot of it is just speculation, though. Yeah, if only they published some data. <laughs> yeah, Jeez. I know, I know. <laughs> one skull in particular I thought was cool. Uh, it was one, one that Cushing had. Um, he has this Peruvian skull that has a silver, a silver plate cranioplasty on it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> So not only were they doing decompressive cranies, but they brought them back for the cranioplasty too. I mean, three months, right? Yeah, yeah, something <laughs> like that. 
Wait, so was, were there signs of healing? Like, so that that's the coolest thing. So you, so we're talking about doing these brain surgeries effectively. I mean, they're just they're just basically working up with the bone, but they're they're getting in there and they're doing them with what looks like rocks and stuff like that. And when you look at these skulls, you can actually see on the edge of the skull advanced healing happening in a lot of the skulls, wow. implying a lot of these people actually were surviving these operations. Man. <laughs> the estimates that I saw were something like 60 to 80% of the skulls that they found looked like the patient survived the operation. So 40% mortality for like an elective surgery is not not the best. Um, but I mean, if you're if you're doing it with like rocks you found on the ground, actually, that sounds pretty good to me. Yeah. That's that's all just trying to infer stuff from skulls we can find. There's actually some pretty old documentation we can find. The Egyptians were probably the oldest culture that we have some actual like written documentation. One of the oldest pieces that we have is the Edwin Smith papyrus. That one is supposed to be dated 1700 BC, but it's pretty obviously a copy. And so they think the original that was written was around 3000 BC. And in it, it actually talks about different kinds of head injuries and different kinds of skull fractures and scalp lacks and stuff and how you would treat them. It talks about the different layers of the meninges. It talks about identifying the brain by the the convolutions. Hmm. It mentions that not being able to speak could be a sign of damage to the the temporal lobes in the brain. Wow, that's pretty... That's pretty advanced. I wonder. Yeah. The the one thing that you see in a lot of these early texts, though, is that they don't really go into the brain. They're all just talking about basically skull fractures, opening up holes, elevating depressed skull fractures. That's about the extent of the surgical practice that was done at this time. I mean, they were removing the brain at that time in dead people, right? Putting yeah, it in jars. Yeah, but that that's that's dead people. Right. I mean, uh, how else would you, would you get the knowledge <laughs> except for dissection, right? When I refer to brain surgeries, I mean like people who like aren't already dead. In addition to the um, the Egyptian text, probably one of the, the most extensive ancient writings that we have is from Hippocrates. He was around 400 BC-ish. He has extensive documentation on all sorts of, again, skull fractures, mostly head injuries. He also talked a little bit about seizures, and he actually mentions that the pathology in the brain is contralateral to the seizure. So if you're, you know, if you're shaking on one side of the brain, the pathology is on the other side of the brain. So he, has, he had some insight into that layout of the brain yeah. as well. How do you get that insight without EEG? Uh, you, you see someone, and then you eventually crack their skull open. and you, I assume this is all like post-mortem analysis sorts of things. Yeah, that's a, I guess that would have to be it, right? <laughs> yeah. Even later, that's how, until we had brain imaging and, and non-invasive sorts of modalities, that was the only way that we could infer function. You know, you do a really good clinical history on a patient, and then eventually when they die, you do the postmortems and try and infer from what you see. But man, <laughs> to think about the tools these guys were working with, it's kind of wild. Yeah, they didn't have much advanced stuff at the time. For example anesthesia was extremely limited. Hippocrates, how, what he describes, he would have these wine-soaked bandages, and some of the wine he would give to the patient, and then some of the wine he would soak in the bandage and then apply to the actual wound, and it was supposed to soak into the wound and actually numb the wound a little bit. One thing that obviously he doesn't talk about but might have been an effect is there could also have been like a sterilization type of effect, which right. would be nice. Um, they didn't understand that at the time. But it, it clearly wasn't a one for you, one for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Hopefully not. <laughs> well, it could have been. I, there's, it does not specifically talk about that. In records that we have from South America, um, they talk about coca leaves for anesthesia. They would give the patients coca leaves. They would actually, this, this kind of sounds gross to me, they would chew up some of the coca leaves and then spit them into the the wounds to use the local anesthetic effects, which was probably effective, but not necessarily the best for sterilization, probably. Right. I think I would have gone with the wine in that case. Yeah. Wine sounds a little better. But, you know, you, you do what you can. Right. So it seems like starting out pretty early, dawn of civilization, we're getting some insight, stuff goes wrong with the brain, you get a head injury, we can try and do stuff with your skull fractures, and you would kind of think we're just going to keep improving stuff and getting better and better over time from there. There were a few historical speed bumps along the way that kind of slowed things down. The biggest issue was through the Middle Ages, there was a slowing of scientific thought that just kind of put a damper on everything. They were kind of of the mindset, right, that they, well, we already, we already know everything we need to know. Yeah. We might as well not desecrate any more bodies doing anything anymore. They kind of held the Greek writings as the you know, be-all, end-all, Hippocrates, this is the, the medical text of everything. And yes, there was a strong religious influence at the time to not allow for things like human dissections. Because of the strong religious influence at the time, there was an emphasis on things like prayer and not necessarily delving as deeply into the scientific causes of things. We're talking from like 500 BC to like 1500 AD-ish. Not much changed in practice. But, but they still did some things, right? Like yes. What? So there were some people that were trying to delve deeper into the brain, but there were kind of three fundamental issues that held people back from really diving in there. First of all, they didn't really understand so much of exactly what what the brain was doing, what was important in the brain. Um, the overall kind of neuroscience was not fully developed at the time. A huge thing was the infectious risk. You know, doing these sort of sur surface level things, people would recover from, you know, skin infections and stuff like that. Once you start cutting into the brain, the infectious risk went crazy and mortality was like 100%. And then even after they started controlling for those things, they didn't have very good methods of hemostasis within the brain either. Old-fashioned method methods of hemostasis like hold pressure just don't really work well inside right. the brain. Yeah, because I'm, I'm thinking about our reliance on the bipolar forceps. Yeah. I'm trying to think about backup to that. Yeah. And if you don't have any of those things, if all you have is like gauze in your finger, right. it could get hairy. Oh, man. Sounds like a big mess. Yes. So in the Middle Ages, just to give you like a taste of what was going on, I found some cool recipes for the things that they would use for anesthesia. Oh, awesome. Um, yeah, which <laughs> I, I, I thought these were these are pretty funny. For example, from an anesthesia perspective, a lot of time they would just give people different kinds of drugs, alcohol, whatever, to try to zonk them out so they could do surgery on them. And a lot of times they would overdose them and they would stop breathing and die. Um, and so there was this guy, Borgognoni, in around 1200 who came up with the idea of soaking these sponges with all this stuff, like soaking it with opium and hemlock and all the all the stuff they were using at the time. And then he would stick this sponge underneath their nose and they would it would just slowly evaporate and it would, he would get like a constant concentration drip going on basically. man it's like the first sevo yeah exactly exactly <laughs> the first the first volatile going on That's nice. um 
So that's, you know, that that's 1,200-ish. Okay, we're making some progress. Some of the big anesthetic drugs at the time were mandrake and henbane, which, interestingly, they sound like something you'd find in, like, a Harry Potter movie or something, right? They're actually belladonna alkaloids, and we derive atropine and scopolamine from them. And at- atropine and scopolamine obviously have sedative right. effects. And so they actually have a basis in modern science to modern practice. There's a reason they come into common use. Yeah, yeah. We're, we we get all of our modern practices from one of these random weird things that we just discovered along the way. Right. As, as a counterpoint to that, here's another quote that I found. And this is like 1600-ish. Um, there was a German surgeon who would recommend salves of earthworms, hog brain, mummy and the moss of a man's skull that was either killed or hanged and gathered when the star of venus predominates i mean that's the classic example of a type one error he had a group where the star of venus predominated and didn't predominate and the star of when the star of venus predominated it was significantly better so yeah he wasn't a big (laughs) i clearly didn't study confounders yeah Uh, uh, yeah. i I don't know how much evidence was behind that (laughs) right (laughs) a lot of this was just they were doing what they could at the time and whatever seemed to be working they would use a random mixture of things and some of them maybe were working some of them weren't but they were they were doing the best they could with what they had available to them so that's going on through about 1500 so from ancient greek times to around 1500 really not doing that much, mostly just surface stuff. And one of the real things holding us back is this infectious rate and not really understanding what's going on. So around 1500s, we start hitting into the Renaissance. And that was a huge burst in science in general. There were a bunch of people who started going against the grain and doing things like human dissections and stuff like that and trying to figure out how things were working, more experimentation in animals. Vesalius is one of the big anatomical people. He did a lot of dissections and diagrams and made an actual atlas of anatomy. Yeah, that was uh, what a lot of our uh, anatomic dissections in med school were based on. Yeah, actually. yeah. Really cool pictures that he did too. He was obviously a good good artist. And then around this time, there were a couple famous people. Gabriele Fallopio was the guy who figured out the trigeminal nerve, glossopharyngeal nerve. Bartolomeo Eustachy identified the abducens and the optic nerves. That, that, that was a complete surprise to me. Because <laughs> <laughs> based on the eponyms, <laughs> I would not have expected that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fallopio, you know, the guy who figured out the trigeminal nerve. Yeah. And then obviously uh, Thomas Willis in around, around 1600s, he, he figured out the vascular system. So that one makes sense. So we're talking 15, 1600s. We start getting some better anatomical picture of what's going on, leading us into like 1800s. Over the next couple hundred years, we get a little better idea of, okay, the brain is actually the important thing. It's the thing controlling things. This led into Franz Joseph Gall in around 1800, where he he came up with phrenology. That's the whole localization. Parts of the brain are specifically involved in specific things. And his misconception was that the physical size of the area of the brain had to do with the function, which obviously didn't turn out to be true. But the localization principles 
ended up ended up being actually very helpful. Leading up to 1860s, 1870s, when Paul Broca and Carl Wernicke were around, you know, getting into getting into more localization of function. In 1870, Fritz and Hitzig were able to localize the motor cortex by stimulating dogs' brains electrically. So now 1800s, we're starting to actually we have the anatomy of the brain down, we understand the nerves, where cortex is located, we understand that different parts of the brain are involved in different functions. So we're really we're really starting to flesh out an understanding of the brain, understanding of neuroscience, and now can we actually do some applications of this to medicine? Yep. No. <laughs> the, the answer is no. <laughs> I mean, you can try. We could try. That's, I mean, and, that's that's what you got to do. Is you try until you get it right. <laughs> and it it sounds like it sounds like people did. I was trying to get a, get an idea of what people were doing, and you read through some of these like these medical texts at the time, and basically everyone says, "Don't go in the brain. If you go in the brain, they're gonna die." And it, you get you get yeah. the impression they don't say they don't say what they did, but you get the impression like everyone kind of tried it one or two times, right. and it turned out really really bad. And they're like. Don't do this. There's one of those times where you say, nothing's 100%, but, you know, <laughs> every, right now, this is 100%. <laughs> every brain surgery I've performed, the patient died. The problem was the infectious risk. Yeah. Everyone everyone would die from massive meningitis. Like, for example, even up to, this was 1869, there was a quote from this surgeon, John Erickson, um, in London. And he said, in the treatment of injuries of the brain, little can be done after the system has rallied from the shock. As much should be left to nature as possible. The surgeon merely remo- removing all sources of irritation and excitement and then applying a simple local dressing. Because of the recognition that the kind of the more you do in these patients, you just end up doing more harm. Well, and in a sense, this seems to be the first way to manage ICP. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, our treatment of TBIs is not much improved. Right. <laughs> So specifically referring to the, the infectious risk, un- an understanding of where the source of infection came from was not very well fleshed out for a, for a pretty long time. When you start getting to the Renaissance, there's some little starting to be hints of, you know, maybe it comes from some source, some physical source. In the 1500s, for example, Ambrose Paré was one of the big people who put forth modern surgical concepts. He was around in the 1500s. And he said that he thought the infection was somehow introduced from the environment, which is, you know, a huge thing at the time as a concept. Yeah, that's that's radical then. (laughs) Yeah. And going all the way up into the early 1800s, we have a couple really specific demonstrations of okay, I think disease is actually coming from a physical source. Like there was the a famous experiment in 1822 by Gaspard where he took pus from one infected dog and injected it into another, into another dog, and that dog became infected and then died, showing that you can transfer the disease through physical substance, that it's, that it's something about that physical substance that actually caused the disease. Um, and then the really famous and tragic story of Dr. Semmelweis in the 1850s, where the maternity ward, where yeah. the mothers were delivered by doctors who had just done dissections in the morgue, and one ward where the mothers were delivered by midwives who had not done any recent dissections. And Semmelweis saw that there was a, a huge difference in the mortality between them. And then he actually did an experimental manipulation where he went in there and said, hey, guys, after you go to the morgue and dissect people, maybe you should wash your hands. And then mortality dropped. And unfortunately was, you know, 
booed out of medicine for being crazy for saying that this was the source of infection. Man, that's sort of... That sort of cultural inertia will kill you. Yeah, I know. Unfortunately, we see lots of examples of that all over, you know. Right. So we're coming up to mid-1800s already. It's been a long time. We've been trying a lot of things. We haven't made a whole bunch of progress, but just in the last couple hundred years, we've made a lot of progress in neuroscience. We're really starting to figure out what the brain is there for. And then we're starting to get some hints of, wait a minute, we might have figured out where this infection's coming from. Mm-hmm. The big breakthrough, obviously, is around 1865, Louis Pasteur comes up with his whole simple experiment. Hey, this thing causes infection, and then I boil it, and it doesn't cause infection. I can sort of experimentally modulate the infectious risk by killing something in this thing. That led off the whole concept of germ theory and that there is some living thing that's causing this disease. And then a couple of years later, Joseph Lister, in 1867, he was a professor of surgery at Glasgow at the time, he applied Pasteur's theory to wounds, and he started making antiseptic protocols for surgeries, saying, hey, if we think it's coming from the environment, let's try and clean the environment and see if that improves our infectious rates. Yeah, did it work out? <laughs> well, this is one of his uh, recommendations from what he published. He said, All carpets and unnecessary furniture should be removed from the patient's room. The walls and ceilings should be carefully cleaned the day before the operation. On the day before the operation, the patient's head is shaved and scrubbed with soap and water, and all of the surgical instruments are boiled in water for two hours. Interesting intervention. You know, take out all the unnecessary stuff, clean everything, boil all your instruments. Actually sounds pretty reasonable, right? Yeah, stuff we take for granted now. Yeah. When you read this stuff and you say that the recommendation is you should take out all the unnecessary furniture, which kind of implies what's... Somebody on a recliner. <laughs> yeah, there's somebody. As, as you're doing surgery, is there someone just sitting there? Dog hops up on your lap. Oh, yeah. hey, hey, buddy. <laughs> which, you know, when, when you look at some of these like old pictures of how they would do surgery, you know, it's, it's the surgeons in like suits and, you know, sitting in the parlor doing their surgery. Yeah. Anytime you see these pictures or depictions with the surgeon with bare hands, the body. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, man. That's that. And, and honestly, that's how it was at right. the time. They didn't understand. A lot of times they didn't even, for example, wash their hands, you know, like, yeah. like with the, with the Semmelweis case, like just, just simple interventions. Right. To, th- to, th- to think that that was something that they opposed too. That's, that's yeah. wild. <laughs> yeah. So Lister, after implementing this protocol, he dropped his mortality rate from doing amputations from 45% to 15%. Good. Not great. But yeah. Better. yeah pretty, so a lot better. <laughs> good good progress. Still, yeah. 15% mortality from amputation. Okay, okay. But yeah, I mean, better than 50%. Right. So then in the years to come, a couple more refinement of those things. 1891, Ernst van Bergman... Sh- introduced heat sterilization, so that made it even easier to sterilize your instruments. Sterile gowns and caps were introduced in 1883, masks in 1897. And then importantly, um, in 1890, William Stewart Halstead, a prominent surgeon at the time who will come up later, at the time they were using, you know, these like kind of caustic solutions to wash their hands. He wanted to protect his nurse's hands from these caustic materials. Um, So he called up the Goodyear company and had them make rubber gloves for his nurse to use. So that was the first introduction of rubber gloves to the surgical suite. Yeah. So 
1850s, 1900, around this period, all of a sudden we have this huge explosion in weight we're starting to figure out this infectious risk, which was one of, like one of the main things holding us back this whole time of everyone dies from these massive infections. Wait, we're actually starting to figure this out. Maybe we can do these surgeries without causing massive sepsis. Right. So one of those big three things that we talked about is now significant, a significantly lower risk. Yeah. Now we just got to improve our, we got to have people calm down <laughs> to get the surgery. <laughs> Whiskey and a stick was always the traditional anesthetic method. I thought it was just the stick. The well, d- and then you got to do another surgery. You got to get the good anesthesiologist. The good anesthesiologist gives you the whiskey. Oh, okay. <laughs> Around the same time, actually, um, we were starting to get more advancements in anesthesia as well. The first anesthetic gases were starting to come out, and those those were the things that more reliably enabled us to actually put people to sleep and um, have them survive. Which is always more a, reliable than the sponge with the mandrake. Slightly, slightly more reliable than the mandrake sponge. Nitrous oxide first came around in like the late 1700s. It was first discovered in 1772 by Joseph Priestley, but then in 1799, Sir Humphrey Davy in uh, in England, he was asked to establish the pneumatic institute and apparently the concept at the time was that some of these weird gases that they were discovering they might have some medicinal properties so what he was actually charged to do was to try out these gases and see if he could cure cancer with with nitrous or whatever it turns out as they were just sitting around using nitrous and eventually ether they they realized that wow these are really fun And and they didn't they didn't cure any of the diseases like it didn't cure anybody's cancer but it sure made people not care about their cancer as they realized more these things don't have really good medicinal properties but they do actually have really good analgesic and anesthetic properties the first physician to actually realize hey we could use these as anesthetics Crawford Long in 1842. He was the first one to actually use ether as an anesthetic to remove a tumor from someone's neck. He wasn't the one that's famously remembered as using ether. The person who's famously uh, remembered for introducing ether anesthesia is William Morton in 1846 because he he set up the whole public demonstration in Mass General in what's now called the Ether Dome. So we're hitting the late 1800s. The major things that have been holding us back this whole time, like massive infection post-op, not really knowing where we're going in the brain. We're starting to figure those things out. So now some of the first example of like real intracranial surgeries happening um, happened at this time. In 1879, in Glasgow, this surgeon, Sir William McEwen, he took out a meningioma and the patient lived for eight years. That's, that's a pretty good outcome. <laughs> pretty good. Pretty good. In 1884, the first real brain parenchymal surgeries happened. Alexander Bennett was a neurologist. It's interesting to actually read the case report of this, of this patient. The patient came in with, with some progressive motor weakness and focal motor seizures and this really progressive pain in his head. And that was his main complaint was this pain in his head. Um, and it's actually kind of sad reading through the the report of it. It talks about him staying up all night screaming, and that this was this was completely unbearable for him. The surgeon at the time, um, Sir Rickman Godley, he wrote up 
the whole case and goes into detail of exactly what he did, a lot of his thought process in doing it, um, which sounds really kind of honest in this patient was kind of at the brink. This was this was the only thing they could think of doing, and they, they understood it was risky, but they were going to try it out and see what happened. At that point, it was kind of like, we think this patient's going to die. This is almost like a palliative operation. Right. So in 1884 again, he goes in there. The, the neurologist he was working with, Dr. Bennett, said, I think based on the patient's symptoms, we're talking about a motor cortex tumor. So he went in there. He opened up an incision over the motor cortex. He found what turned out to be a glioma. He carved it out. The patient immediately post-op did actually really good. The pain was a lot better. The seizures went away. The The weakness slightly improved. The pathology that they did post-op, apparently, apparently he did actually a really good job resecting the tumor. Unfortunately, post-op day four, um, the patient started developing a wound infection. And then post-op day 28, he died from disseminated meningitis. Wow. So not... Not the perfect outcome, but first real brain surgery ever in 1884 that we have published. And he didn't die from a hematoma. That's, inter- that's the interesting part. Yeah. <laughs> they, they were actually able to accomplish the surgery. The, the big risk, again, like we've been struggling with this whole time, is infection. Yeah. This is where we've gotten to so far. We're rounding out end of the 1800s, turn of the century, and this is where Cushing walks onto the scene. This is the environment where... He starts growing up, and Harvey Cushing graduated college in 1891. So he was just coming on the scene when all these things were happening. And he was the perfect person to be this founder of modern neurosurgery. Because when, when you read about Cushing himself, you know, his personality, he was very intense. He was very meticulous, and he was very, very passionate about getting these things moving. These surgeries obviously require very meticulous care. Even now that we have the principles of aseptic surgery and those things, actually applying them to a surgery, you have to be extremely meticulous. You know, yeah. when you're in the OR and you accidentally bump a bump against something or whatever, you contaminate yourself. How you scrub out. Yeah. I'm sure at the time when they were first understanding these concepts, they probably didn't have the seriousness of that concept really right. understood. They're probably like, oh, I just, I just bumped it with my finger. It's cool. Eh, whatever. <laughs> I mean, when, when a year earlier you were doing the surgery with your bare hands, right. <laughs> you know. It had to be someone that was willing to be that meticulous, but also based on Samwise and everything, it had to be in an environment where people were receptive to that. Yeah. And could see the reasoning behind it. <laughs> yeah. With, with, a, with, I think, a, co- a combination of kind of a, a bold personality to go against the grain, which, right. you know, Cushing also demonstrated the, that kind of leadership pushing, pushing the boundaries. Yeah. So Cushing graduated college, 1891, went to med school after that. One of the early formative experiences with him as a second year med student, he was with a surgeon, Frank Lyman, who asked him to sub in for the, the anesthesiologist because the anesthesiologist was just like a random, random guy. was wasn't a physician at the time. And one of his patients that day died on the table. And it actually had like a huge impact on him. And he actually talked about quitting medicine overall. But instead of that, he actually he used those experiences to drive him to start working on improving outcomes in patients. Like, for example, he came up with the anesthetic record that, hey, instead of just giving people random amounts, we should actually monitor exactly how much anesthetic we're giving to people and sort of titrate it to effect. That sounds like if you're that meticulous a guy, 
guy and then to go into a field where they're like, eh, you know, you just give whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I could see how that would make him uncomfortable. <laughs> exactly. And, and then early on in his experience, his patient dies in front of him. Another addition that he made to the anesthetic record is at the time, how people were monitoring, for example, the cardiovascular system is they had someone feeling the pulse continuously. They would feel the pulse. They'd feel the character of the pulse, how strong it was. And in, in Cushing's travels, he actually came upon someone who invented this pneumatic cuff to it's basically our modern non-invasive cuff figmo manometer yeah he came upon that and he said wow this is amazing we can actually like quantitatively measure blood pressure and that was a thing that he actually pushed for instead of people just feeling the pulse we should be regularly quantitatively measuring the blood pressure recording that and titrating our anesthetic and giving blood based on the blood pressure that we get. So you can tell right now the systematic way that Cushing approached things. Yeah. So we're talking around like 1900 right now. Cushing is just graduating from med school. He just finished his his initial residency. And one of the things that people did at the time, Europe was kind of the main place to go. You know, Europe was the center of everything at the time. American surgeons would go out to Europe to try to learn from the experts out there. One of the big guys in Europe at the time, in England at the time, was Victor Horsley. Our uh, giant spinous process clippers are named after yeah, him. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Horsley was one of the pioneering neurosurgeons at the time. And so Cushing went out to learn from him. We actually have a letter from Cushing that he wrote back to his father saying, I am a little disappointed in Victor Horsley. The technique of all these men is execrable from our standpoint, and they must have many septic wounds. And apparently at the time, the rate of mortality from neurosurgery was in the range of 30 to 50 percent. And most of those people died from infection post-op. That's, that's, that's a huge rate. Yeah. Even those people that did not die of infection, bleeding was also a huge problem at the time. Like we said, we did not have very good ways of dealing with the bleeding. So now that we're getting, now that we're getting deep into the brain, we're getting more bleeding that's getting harder to control. We also didn't really understand transfusions at the time. Right. So it's not like we had a blood bank. They didn't have any blood typing or anything. <laughs> no. The concept of blood type was only just starting to come out. They also didn't have any way of storing blood. So, uh-huh. for example, they would try blood transfusions if they needed to, but the way that they would do it is they would find a donor, and the donor would just sit there, and if they wanted to transfuse <laughs> during the surgery, they would just plug in, you know, one <laughs> one end of the IV in one guy, one end of the IV in the other guy, and just literally bleed him into the... Uh, just give him a high chair. Yeah, just <laughs> sit him on a higher chair and let it go. One of the big contributions that Horsley actually made himself was in 1886, he developed bone wax. So that was very helpful for cutting down on the bleeding risk there. How Horsley actually dealt with the bleeding? At the time, some people were heating up needles and sticking hot needles into the brain to try to use them as as direct cautery. Horsley was super against that, wrote a bunch of things saying that it was barbaric and that they shouldn't be using that. What he would do was irrigate with hot saline and then try and pack it with gauze. Which actually isn't too far from what we do now. Warm saline irrigation is a staple. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that, that that hot needle thing is kind of interesting because we definitely have something like that in the ICU. Yeah. And I will say that it's a lot less effective than electrocautery. <laughs> sure. What do you use it for now? Oh, uh, well, since we don't have a Bovey machine in there, uh, uh-huh. they actually have a little, basically it's a battery and a light filament. <laughs> uh-huh. And you can use it for cautery if you need it. But I would say it's rarely used. Yeah. Just not, not super useful. Yeah. But, I mean, it's better than nothing if you need yeah. it. <laughs> so we're talking like 19 aughts here. Cushing came back to the U.S., doing his little stint in Europe, pretty disappointed in the current state-of-the-art technique. 
when he gets back is one of the critical moments in his whole career. He meets up with um, William Halstead. He was that famous American surgeon at the time. He was one of the founders of Johns Hopkins. He met up with him. He became Halstead's protege and started working at Johns Hopkins with him. With Cushing's emphasis on using strict aseptic technique, being very meticulous with his dissections, being very meticulous with the bleeding, by 1910, Cushing had done 250 surgeries and had a mortality rate of less than 13%. And on the last 50 surgeries that he did, his mortality rate was less than 6%. So he he was just getting progressively better and better, and his mortality rates were dropping way lower than anyone at the time. That aseptic technique. This is a reason we consider him the founder and not someone before him. <laughs> yes, yes. He, he's the one that made neurosurgery safe. Yeah, substantial improvements from anyone else doing anything like that at the time. Some of the early contributions that he made. In 1911, he came out with this thing which he called the silver clip. It was basically, he took some silver wire and he wrapped it around a pencil and then he cut the, the loops into little U's And then he had a little, like, it was basically a clip applier that he took these little U's, and then he would use that to just just clip off little blood vessels in the brain. First little clips. (laughs) Exactly. Like, wow, that's that's amazing. Around this time, Cushing was playing with a bunch of other things. He he made this pneumatic tourniquet thing that would squeeze the, the scalp to try to reduce bleeding. That ended up not really working out. But what he ended up doing in the end, which is sort of similar to what we do now, he would take the hemostats, And as he was dissecting the scalp, he would clip the edge with the hemostat and then just let the hemostat hang and it would kind of bend over the scalp. And the combination of the clipping of the hemostat and the bending over helped occlude a lot of those arteries. You see some of those pictures. There are a huge number of hemostats Mm -hmm. along these scalp flaps, Mm -hmm. like 20 or so. That mechanical sort of compression. Yeah. Probably probably helped quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if it if it works, that's great. Right. Eventually, that kind of that concept of clipping the edge of the scalp as you're cutting was eventually refined. Instead of using the whole hemostat, just using little clips with again a clip applicator by Rainey in 1936 when he developed the Rainey clip, which is obviously used now. One of the big problems, unfortunately, the Cushing kind of bumped into in these surgeries is because he was so meticulous, his surgeries were really long and he frequently had to stage them. His outcomes were kind of held back by the fact that he would have to go so slowly to prevent hemorrhage that his surgeries were just excessively long. All the stuff around this time, this is like the 19-teens, he's really trying to find something that he can use to fix this hemostasis problem. He started playing around with fibrin, actually. There were some chemists at Harvard that would extract fibrin from blood, and he would try and make these mixtures to try to induce clotting. It actually, eventually, Tracy Putnam in 1943 ended up making a mixture of thrombin that was eventually developed into what we now know as Surgicel. And then in 1945, Richard Light and Hazel Prentice developed the gelatin sponge, which is now gel foam surgifoam, that sort of thing. Um, so the concepts that he was playing around with actually ended up being developed into what we now use as hemostatic agents. He wasn't really able to get there at the time. But, but that's still a huge deal, though, because while you could use those hemoclips and what have you on large vessels, there are so many small points of bleeding that you wouldn't be able to use that technique on. You need to be irrigating for hours. Mm-hmm. Or you go ahead and you find something a little more efficient. Now, now you have that efficiency. So maybe you don't need to spend, you know, 18 hours in the OR in a simple yeah. case. Yeah. The last big step to modern neurosurgery happened in the 1920s. There was a guy, 
you might know his name, William Bovey, who was really into physics. He was an electrical engineer, physics guy, and he was really interested in biological applications of physics. So he came to Harvard, and at the time there was no such field as biophysics. So he said, you know, I'm really, there's, a, there's actually, there's a quote from him actually, he says, do you know, I have an idea that there is a field between physics and biology, a field that should be known as biophysics. So he kind of came up with this field of biophysics of, you know, trying to come up with applications of physics to biology. And he was appointed as a professor at Harvard from 1920 to 1927. At this time, he was giving lectures on different sorts of applications of electrical devices to biologic systems. And Cushing actually saw some of his lectures and came up to him and, and developed with him the idea that we could make this electrocautery device that we could use in surgery to try to help with hemostasis. So Bovey came up with his electrosurgical device. The description that I heard of it, it says, the first generation device required an assistant to operate a switchboard in the room and was almost the size of a handgun. Yeah. I mean, if you can think about it, at that point, what was this, the 1920s? Yeah, yeah they, they, they didn't really have the amplifiers we're used to using now. They didn't, oh, certainly, yeah. the transistors came out, what, 20 or 30 years later? Yeah, they did not have all the cool, fancy microchips that we have nowadays, but he got it done. So the first application of this, September 28th, 1926, Cushing was working on removing a really vascular tumor from a patient's head. He ended up actually aborting the surgery because it was too vascular. Mm-hmm. So this is September 28th. So a couple days later, October 1st, he goes to Bovey and he's like, hey, I need your help. Let's try out your new device. Let's call it the Bovey. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so in Cushing's notes from the time, he says, with Dr. Bovey's help, I proceeded to take off most satisfactorily the remaining portion of the tumor with practically none of the bleeding that was occasioned in the preceding operation. In another note of the surgery at the time, I thought this was just kind of funny, Cushing wrote, the operation was a perfect circus, many ringed. The New England Surgical Association was here and almost every hand was occupied with them. I had persuaded Dr. Bovey to bring his electrosurgery unit over here to let me see what I could do with its cutting loop. This had necessitated re-electrifying the operating room. Apparently, they had de-electrified it at some point. Um, Dr. Greenall appeared with four or five coughing Frenchmen with colds in their heads, and the student who was acting as a possible blood donor fainted and fell off his seat. So it ended up being a huge success, basically. He was able to get the tumor out, really control the bleeding in ways that he could not using any other methods. So it was really a huge step forward. We're starting to understand neuroscience more. We're starting to actually be able to localize things in the brain. We don't have neuroimaging, so localizing at this point is basically just clinical exam. We can figure out, hey, you have these symptoms. I think this might be wrong with your brain. We have anesthesia now. We can put you to sleep. We can wake you up, and you're probably not going to die in between. We have the infectious risk under control. If we use strict techniques, if we use clean stuff, mortality rate is not that high. And now all of a sudden we start having some real modern tools for hemostasis. So we can get you through the surgery in a reasonable amount of time without having massive hemorrhage. So that's what led to the birth of sort of modern neurosurgery. And that, that's sort of why Harvey Cushing was kind of at the center of it. He came right after this period in the mid-1800s where he had this huge burst of, you know, Pasteur 
and burst in knowledge in neuroscience, Broco Wernicke, and with his perspective on things, with his really meticulous technique, with his passion, with his pushing the limits, he was able to apply all of these things to show people that we can actually do brain surgeries reasonably with reasonably low mortality. And that led to the whole birth of the field of, okay, now we can actually do this. And obviously the, the huge advancement that's been made since those times. And as a more general statement, what he was able to do was he was able to take the discoveries in different fields and incorporate them into a meaningful advance in medicine. Yeah. He was really good at going out there and finding new methods and new technologies and trying to find applications within neurosurgery. So I hope that was interesting. I found it really fascinating looking back at the development of these things. So many wild little things. Yeah. Stuff in the liver and the wounds, mandrake in the nose. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> even even with all these cool things, there are, there are actually a bunch of other things that I came across of different evolution of um, medicine through the time. So maybe maybe in a, in a future episode we can go over some more stuff too. Yeah, I think I think at some point we got to cover that imaging stuff. And yeah, the development of neuroimaging is super cool. So hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks for listening. As always. Go to our website. Even though this episode wasn't as evidence-based, um, I, I will put up on the website the sources that I was using, that I the books that I read through. If you want to get a little more depth on the history of neurosurgery, the website, again, is freshbrains.wtf. Please subscribe to the podcast. We'll keep trying to push out episodes. If you have any feedback for us, if you just want to say hi, please send us an email. My email is bill at freshbrains.wtf. Carl is carl at freshbrains.wtf. Carl with a K. The right kind of Carl. Carl with a K. (laughs) You can find me on Twitter at BillGrossMD. I don't remember mine. (laughs) Carl needs to get a Twitter account. If you send us a really interesting email, we might read it online. And if you have some ideas of things that you'd like us to look into and talk about on the show, let us know. For sure. Definitely open to any suggestions or criticism. Otherwise, we will see you next time. Oh, fresh brains. Fresh. Uh, for example, <laughs> what? I don't remember reading that one before. What? <laughs> I don't remember reading about that. Okay, let's wrap it up. <clears throat> any other thoughts or concluding well kind of glad uh didn't grow up in the 1800s <laughs> <laughs> yeah stuff so in the liver and the wounds mandrake in the nose <laughs> Even-